All right, good morning, Embassy Church. It's good to be back with you guys this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Nate Prater. I'm pastor and church planner of Gospel Grace Church in Woodstock, Illinois, which is a church plant from none other than Embassy Church. So I'm glad to be here this morning. I was fortunate enough to um, serve as an elder uh, here at Embassy Church for, oh, I don't know, eight, nine months before uh, I got the right foot of fellowship and booted to Woodstock. So um, I'm glad to be here with you guys this morning. We are picking up in your series on the book of Psalms in Psalm 45 this morning. The title of our sermon this morning is A Song About King Jesus and his bride. And so before we jump into it, let me pray for us this morning. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we want to give you thanks this morning for the opportunity to gather together. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would so work in the hearts and the lives of your people today that you would leave us, O oh Lord, not unchanged, but changed, we pray, more into the image of Christ more conformed to, Lord, the life and person of your Son. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling this morning with despair, that you might grant them hope. Lord, for those who are struggling, struggling physically, Lord, that in your kindness and mercy you might deliver them from them, those struggles. And yet, Lord, if that's not your will, that you would sustain them with your presence that is better than any physical healing. And so, God, we pray that you would be at work this morning. We pray, hallowed be your name, glorify yourself in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we jump into the book of Psalms, and I was here preaching Psalm 17, it's been a while now, but I like to preface all of my sermons in the Psalms and even the Old Testament this way. The New Testament authors, and more importantly, Jesus himself, teach us that all scripture is ultimately about him, about our glorious Savior and King Jesus. Now, to be sure, there are certain sections of Scripture, certain areas in Scripture that are going to necessitate more biblical and theological rigor to mine the treasures of the Savior. But here's the good news. Our text today is not one of those. The, the language of the king used in Psalm 45 so transcends the potential of any merely earthly king that it's no wonder that the author of Hebrews is going to pick up on Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7 in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews to, to, to vindicate the glory and divinity of Jesus. And so just a little uh, preview of where we're going. Psalm 45, 6 and 7 say this, your throne O oh God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And the author of Hebrews is going to latch on to these two verses in chapter 1, a section of Hebrews where he is describing the glory of Jesus as being far above even the angels who stand in the presence of God moment by moment. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we read this, But of the Son, he says, contrasting here the angels and now saying, well, this is what was said of the angels. They're all ministering spirits and flames of fire. But of the Son, of Christ, this is what said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and 
hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Uh, Biblical commentator Derek Kidner says this, and I think it's one of my favorite quotes that I've heard in a long time. He is speaking here in just a minute in this quote about a paradox we're going to see within our own text today. So Psalm 45 verse 2 is going to speak of this king as more handsome than the sons of men. But then as we just heard in verses 6 and 7, this king is explicitly described as God. And so that paradox of this king who is a son of man or a son of humanity and yet also called God is what Kidner refers to in this quote. He says, this paradox is consistent with the incarnation, but mystifying in any other context. And then this, it is an example of Old Testament language bursting its banks to demand a more than human fulfillment. Think about the imagery there. The language here in the Old Testament bursting its banks. There is no incarnation of our Lord Jesus yet. And and yet the psalmist, as we will see, peering beyond the merely human king is able to recognize something. And so with that in mind, as we proceed in our exposition of this psalm, we will do so with the explicit understanding that this is a marital love song about the true Davidic king, the true king from the line of David, Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And so with that, we're going to begin in verse 1. So what I'm going to do this week, instead of reading the entire text at once, we'll read a, a text, a verse, or a number of verses and then work through those. So The first thing we want to look at in this text, in verse 1, is what I'm calling a call to worship. Psalm 45, verse 1, says this. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And So here we notice in Psalm 45 that the author of this psalm is addressing the king himself on his wedding day. Now it's one thing, I think, to take up your pen and to write about two people getting married, to write about the blessedness of marriage, to write about the virtue of love. But it's another thing to pick up pen and to actually address the king himself, to be so enamored with a person, to be so caught up with a person and therefore with a couple, and to see in them the very form and substance of love itself. To to see in them something that compels you to the point that you're not able to contain the joy in your heart and it overflows with a pleasing theme addressed to this person. And this is precisely what we see the author of this psalm doing. Now keep in mind, inasmuch as this is a psalm about our Lord Jesus, then the overflowing of the psalmist heart is best understood as an act of worship. And and what is worship, friends, if it is not the overflowing of a heart enamored, captivated, and enthralled with the majesty of Jesus himself? This is what worship is. Worship is the overflow of a heart that has been captivated by the person and work of Jesus. Now, inasmuch as this psalm is about King Jesus, and it's addressed to the king, that it's not only a psalm of worship, friends, it's a psalm of prayer. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that this psalm was originally written 
about a king from the line of David, somebody other than Jesus. Obviously, this is hundreds of years before Jesus. That this was written about a, a Davidic king. And by almost all accounts, it would have been read on multiple weddings, different weddings for these Davidic kings. But the psalmist in our text, by divine inspiration, is able to see beyond the temporal king and the temporal marriage. The psalmist sees a glimpse through this king to the king of kings. The psalmist is able to see a glimpse through this marriage to the marriage of all marriages. Have you guys ever stood, maybe outside your, your back window or on the backyard, whatever it may be, a pier and just been enthralled by a mesmerizing sunset? Or have you ever noticed through the clouds those beams of sunlight that spray through and those beautiful sights that capture our attention? And in that moment, known that there was something greater than the sunset, something greater than the beams of light that shone down, something that would not only grab your physical sensibilities and your attention, but something to which that glorious sight testifies to that would actually sustain your soul? Well, that's precisely what's going on with the psalmist here. He has seen by divine grace a glimpse, a glimpse of the glory behind the earthly veil of this king to the heavenly king. And it has made his tongue like the pen of a ready writer and a waiting scribe, eager to express in words of praise something that the vision of his heart has been so captivated by. And so as we look into this psalm, we want to look in the first part here in verses 2 through 9, and we want to notice the splendor and the majesty of our king. So I'm going to read Psalm 45, verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever and ever. Now, the first aspect of the splendor and the majesty of our King Jesus that we want to see from verse 2 is this This king is the Word of God and the gracious Son of Man. And this is the eternal beauty of the king. This king here is the word of God and is the gracious son of man. And that is the eternal beauty of the king. Now this verse tells us that the king is from the sons of men. And when we take this again and we couple it together with verses 6 and 7 that describe this king as none other than God himself, it can refer to nobody except Jesus alone. Now, grace is said to be poured on the lips of this king, which I think refers to the superlative nature of the grace in which this king communicates with. That grace is poured on his lips, speaks to the gracious nature by which this king is able to communicate. But I would say this, it speaks to something even greater. Not just the gracious communication of the king, but the gracious communication that the king is. You see, Jesus is himself the fullest revelation of God, and he has revealed God to us in grace. Now, every king of Israel, if you go back and read through the book of Deuteronomy, every king of Israel was to read the law every day, day by day, soaking in the law. Why? 
because the king of Israel was to lead a people called by God whose purpose was to be a kingdom of priests, to minister to the world on God's behalf and to display the glory of the true and living God to the world. And so this king would read the word, the law, every day. But Jesus, on the other hand, is the very truth of God. Jesus is the eternal word who has taken on flesh, and Jesus is everything that the law looked forward to. Jesus is, in reality, what the law was in shadow. As a matter of fact, we read this in John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. And herein, friend, lies the beauty of this king, or as the psalmist said, the fact that he is more handsome than all the sons of men. His beauty is the manifestation of true beauty. Now, the beauty of Jesus is not the beauty of this world. It's not the airbrushed beauty of Hollywood. The beauty of Jesus is the eternal beauty of the divine essence itself. It is the beauty of grace and truth displayed in him who is both God and man. So this king, once again, is the word of God and the gracious son of man, and this is the eternal beauty of the king. But next, if we look at verses 3 through 5, we want to take a minute and just soak in the fact that this king is majestic in power. Now, let me just pause there. This king is majestic in power, for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Psalm 45, verses 3 through 5. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Now, the king, Jesus, is here depicted as a mighty warrior clothed in splendor and majesty. But as I was reading this, I recognized something, that the splendor and the majesty of this king is not found in what I would probably expect to see earthly power and splendor and majesty. His majestic power, the power in which he rides out victoriously, his majestic power is found in truth, meekness, and righteousness. Now, I think it might be safe to say, if we were to survey a bunch of people, that there might be a general consensus on the fact that truth is powerful. We have statements like, the pen is mightier than the sword. Now, I don't think there's anything that comes close to a consensus of what the actual nature of truth is. I don't think people agree on what truth is, but I think there is probably a general consensus that truth is powerful. Now, In Jesus Christ, we see the utmost power. And one of the reasons we see the utmost power in Jesus is because in Jesus, we see truth itself. Yes, I'm fogging up my glasses up here. If truth is power, then Jesus has utmost power because Jesus does not conform to some human idea of truth. Jesus is truth to which we are all called to conform. Now, while there may be a general consensus about the power of truth, have you ever thought about the glory of Jesus that is revealed in the sin-crumbling, curse-reversing, devil-defeating power 
of meekness. This is the paradox of the gospel. You know, earthly power so often comes to us in great displays of theatrical pomp or of overemphasized authority. You know, somebody who is insecure and worried and, and concerned about the fact of whether or not somebody's going to listen to them will tend to overemphasize their authority. It was not so with Jesus. You know, Jesus is God, and yet very often he is understated. Jesus is the king of glory, and yet he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the very definition of infinite power, and yet willingly dies on the cross for our salvation. Friends, can you see the power of meekness in the presence of this king? Now, meekness must never be confused with weakness. Because meekness, though the world may view it as weakness, meekness is a revelation of the love and grace of God to call broken sinners to himself in Jesus. And therefore, meekness is a part of the very power of God to redeem and grant new life. Here are two verses, famous verses from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, 28 and 29. Jesus cries out, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you notice what Jesus is saying here? It's the very meekness of the Savior. Now, keep in mind that this is a powerful meekness. This is not a weak impotent meekness. This is a meekness possessed of infinite divine power, but it is from the meekness of Jesus that our souls can find the rest that they long for. So Jesus is the very truth and righteousness of God, as this text teaches us, and the truth and righteousness which stand at the very heart of our salvation, and he has made this truth and righteousness known in meekness. And it is in this way that his sharp arrows have pierced his enemy's heart. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Sin, Satan, and death itself have fallen defeated under the power of Christ's truth, meekness, and righteousness. And friends, for those of us that are followers of Jesus today, here in this room, those are our weapons to wage war against the enemy as well. Truth, meekness, righteousness. Well, the last thing that we want to see in these middle verses here are in verses 6 through 9. We want to see the divine king arrayed in divine splendor. The divine king arrayed in divine splendor. Now, in these verses, verses 6 through 9, we are going to see not only the glowing center of this psalm, but we are going to see the very glowing center of all life, of all reality. We will see the center of all theology and all revelation. We will see the Son of Man, the descendant of David according to the flesh, who is nevertheless God over all, forever blessed. Amen, as Paul says. So in verses 6 through 9, speaking of this king who was already described as the most handsome among the sons of men, we read this beginning in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Now notice here the king is described as having a scepter of uprightness. He has loved righteousness. Now, this world in which we live in, this world was created in righteousness and for righteousness. The world was created in righteousness because it was created by God, who is righteous. Now, our understanding of righteousness, friends, just like our understanding of truth, is defined by God. God is not, God cannot be defined by our notions of righteousness. And I think it's so easy for us to think this way. That we have this notion of righteousness, this abstract concept of here's our definition of righteousness. And if God is going to be declared righteous, then he must fit that. Well, that submits God to us. That is to create a God in the image of man rather than us to recognize that we have been created in God's image. And if we want to know what righteousness is, then we must look to him. Now, far too often it is the case that earthly kings, earthly rulers of this world want to bend God to fit their own understandings of righteousness, of love, of justice. There are those who, in the name of God, have promoted the killing of millions of unborn image bearers and who have heralded this atrocity as the great pursuit of righteousness and freedom and have invoked their quote-unquote faith as the means by which they do it. There are others who have enslaved their own people simply to line their own pockets and have claimed the divine right to rule. And all of this has, thread by thread by thread, unwoven the tapestry of God's good created design for the world and for all of humanity. Every distorted act of falsely called righteousness, every deed of mislabeled justice, and every act of self-centered so-called love only serves to move our world further and further away from God's good created design. Every distortion moves humanity and our world further and further from God himself, who alone is our greatest good and the eternal joy of our heart. And so, friends, what we need is we not only need a king who will rule in righteousness, we absolutely need that, but we need a king who is himself the very revelation of righteousness and justice and love. But here's the thing. We, we're finite, we're fallen, we're weak, God knows our constitution. We need this revelation of a king who is righteousness we need it in a way that we can understand it, that we can receive it, but most importantly, we need this revelation to come to us in a way that we can be transformed by it, that humanity can be transformed. In short, what we need is we need a revelation of a king who is himself righteousness, and we need this revelation to come to us as one of us. We need a king who can perfectly relate to us, who understands our weakness, our struggles, our temptations, but we also need a king 
who is incapable of unrighteousness. We need a king who, by the very virtue of his nature, is unable to be anything but righteous. We need a king in whom the very possibility of unrighteousness is an impossibility. Friends, this is Jesus. The one who, verse 2, again described as the most handsome of the sons of men, is said here in verse 6 that your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And here is a king who, in his very own person, has brought together the human and the divine and who is in himself the restoration of God and man. The scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And Jesus has loved righteousness and hated wickedness because in this person, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Well, let's look again at verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Do you often think of Jesus in that way? Like the happiest dude who's ever lived? God has anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. And he is anointed with this oil of gladness beyond anybody else, beyond any other king or ruler, because he alone, of all the kings, all the rulers of the world, of all the people of the world, Jesus alone has loved and cherished the beauty and glory of God as it should be cherished. There is none who has ever loved the will of the Father so much that it led them to what Jesus endured. And it is in this loving of God's will that Jesus is anointed with the oil of joy above gladness. And so let me, let me just rephrase then for us the, the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us to pray daily, right, this, this prayer, and part of it is, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is a prayer that our hearts and our will would be aligned with God's. That's how his will is going to be done here. And did you know that that is also the means by which we will find that same joy? As our will aligns with the perfect will of God? Now, Jesus has been anointed with this oil of joy above his companions because he has loved the Father in a way that nobody else has now, in verses 8 and 9, we see a picture painted of a king arrayed in splendor. You ever read these things? You're like, man, this is pretty opulent, the, the throne room here and what we see. Well, why is it there? Well, verses 8 and 9 paint a picture of a king arrayed in splendor and majesty, and they do so in order to signify the worth and the value of this king who rules as both God and man. Listen to verses 8 and 9. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And at your right hand stands the queen in gold. Now, here is a picture of King Jesus displayed in vast arrays of grandeur, splendor, and majesty. We can say this, that the grandeur of the surroundings are indicative of the grandeur of the king himself. That's the point the psalmist is trying to make. It's not as if when we all are in the presence of Christ in the new Jerusalem or as we await Jesus' return in his presence in heaven, that this is necessarily exactly what we're going to see. The point the psalmist is making 
is that the grandeur and the picture that he's trying to paint is to be indicative of the glory of the king who inhabits the room. But here's the part that got me. Notice the last statement in verse 9. The last statement in a group of verses whose sole purpose is to declare and to describe the splendor and the majesty of this divine human king who rules in righteousness. Notice that the final crowning jewel of this king's splendor and majesty is the queen. Daughters of kings are among your ladies. At your right hand stands the queen, which is where we want to move now in verses 10 through 15. The beauty and glory of the queen And I want us to hear this today of the church, the bride of Christ. It is the glory of King Jesus that he does not simply rule as divine royalty, but that he calls us to join him in that rule, to unite ourselves to him in covenantal love and affection, and in so doing, to become royalty ourselves. Verses 10 and 11 in Psalm 45. Hear, O daughter... And consider and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Now I want us to notice something here, that the beauty of the queen, the beauty of the bride, is found in her completely giving herself to the king. She is to forget her father's people and her father's house, and she is to do so because she desires the beauty of her king. And as followers of Jesus, friends, as the bride of Christ, we are called to leave our old life behind. As a matter of fact, we are to put to death the old man, the old life, day by day. And we are to find our identity in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, we're called to repentance, aren't we? But we're called to repentance, not simply as a call to moral reform. We are called to repentance as love. The old life, here described by your people and your father's house in verse 10, is left behind so that as the bride of Christ, we can completely, wholeheartedly, and unreservedly give ourselves to him. See, repentance, the complete turning away from our old life, to give ourselves 100% to Jesus is at the core of its meaning an act of love. And any moral reform flows out of the love. This is why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And isn't this the nature of love? True love displays the reciprocating nature of devotion and affection. Jesus has called the church, his bride, to himself... And he has devoted himself completely to his bride. And I think I could add this, he has done so lavishly. Now the church's reception of Jesus' devotion is to be met with our own devotion. Demonstrating our heart's singular pursuit of Jesus Christ himself as our soul's greatest good. You see, as the bride of Christ, as the bride of the true king, the church's identity, formerly found in our old life, is now found solely in the great bridegroom, our king, Jesus. And because of this devotion to the king, 
who has already called us to himself, but because of this devotion, Jesus will desire our beauty. He desires the beauty of devotion to himself. Isn't that amazing? You think about that this morning when you walked into church? Like you're here devoting yourself to Jesus and and Jesus, picture it, Jesus is there looking down, desiring your beauty. The king who is the Lord of all things, who rules all things, looks down at his bride and he desires her beauty. And again, the beauty is found where? Not in physical appearance, but in the single-minded, wholehearted devotion to Christ himself. Now, the devotion is not only beautiful to the king, but God uses it as a part of his plan to restore the world. Now, this is verse 12, and this will take just a little bit of unpacking, so bear with me. Verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. Tyre was once an ally of Israel, but at this point they have become the enemy of Israel, and they have taken and plundered from Israel that which belongs to God. Listen to Joel chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. When God says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your head swiftly and speedily. Why? For you have taken my silver and my gold, and you have carried away my riches or my treasures into your temples. Now in this way, Tyre who here is seen as the enemy of God, who has plundered God, but at one time was an ally of God's people. Tyre here is a vivid depiction of sinful humanity, created Adam and Eve, an ally of God, but then fallen, taken God's good gifts, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being the the forbidden fruit, but taken that and then beginning to use God's gifts against himself and his kingdom. Tyre stands as a picture of, of sinful, fallen humanity who is utilizing the gifts of God against God. But notice in our text what the result of the queen's singular devotion to her king and husband is. Verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. Tyre, who plundered from God, who took what was not rightfully theirs, is now seen with the reversal of that sinful inclination and now is bringing back and giving gifts to the bride. And so, we see that not only is the bride's devotion to King Jesus beautiful in the eyes of the Savior, but it's actually a part of God's plan to redeem the world. Now, Christ in the church, this is God's answer for the brokenness of the world because of sin. It's through the church, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the spiritual forces of darkness. Through the church's love and devotion to Jesus, no matter what we're going through, it is a loud proclamation to all of the minions of the devil, all the forces of darkness, that God has in fact overcome through the person of Christ. And that is most evident, friends, in your life and my life. As we live for Christ in spite of everything that might come against us. When the church, the royal bride of King Jesus, lives with singular focus and devotion to this king, the king of righteousness and mercy, 
then the powers of darkness will tremble at the wisdom of God which has defeated every one of their evil plans. Now, in verses 13 through 15, we're going to see the queen described in splendor and majesty like that of the king. Why? Because when we, by faith, are united to Christ, we become one with him in the covenantal bond of marriage, the marriage of Christ and his people, the church, and we are clothed with his righteousness. We are clothed in his splendor and majesty. And what a glorious description we have here in verses 13 through 15. Let me read these. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold, In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. You see, this is a glorious description of the bride that has anticipated what Sybil read for us this morning. This is a depiction of the bride of Christ, not as we probably see each other when we come to church, not as we see each other when we look at our own selves. This is a depiction of the bride of Christ who Jesus will one day present to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We live our lives Sometimes stumbling through this life, struggling with our own sin, struggling with the sin that comes against us, wondering when it is that we will quit having all these spots and wrinkles, all of these these failures and hardships, and here's the hope of the gospel. That one, yes, Jesus is working in our lives right now, and he's changing us, and he's growing us, but there is a day coming, friends. Can you imagine this? There is a day coming when sin will be eliminated forever. There will be no death. There will be no hardship. And sadness, sadness will be an absurd word. We won't even know what it means. Can you imagine that day? And that's what this looks forward to. What a glorious depiction we have here of the power of love to redeem and to restore. The power of love to call out those who were in poverty of sin and to place us in the power of righteousness. This is what the power of love does. And I'm fighting every instinct in me to quote Huey Lewis right now. If you laughed, you're probably in your 40s. Okay, that's great. This, though, this is the majesty of the queen. It's a sharing in the majesty of Christ. It is unthinkable the glory to which God has called us. And we struggle along in this world and we're going to trip and we're going to fall down. But you guys, I said this to our church last week, you have been created for greatness. You bear the image of God and Christ has come to redeem us, and to restore that image to us. As C.S. Lewis said, you've never met an ordinary person. Humanity bears the image of God himself. Now, I want to finish briefly with our last two verses, verses 16 and 17. And by the way, let me just pause here. There is so many, like, crossed out things I just couldn't get to this week. And so my hope is, is that this would just kind of stir you guys up to go back to Psalm 45 this week and to mine the depths of it. Okay, but that's a side note. Verses 16 and 17, it's the legacy of the king. Verses 16 and 17 switch from the bride and start to address the king one more time. We read this. In the place of your fathers will be your sons. 
You will make them princes in the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So what is the legacy of this king? Well, there are two things from this verse and based on the teaching of the New Testament that I think we can say. First, the legacy of the king is a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons and you will make them princes in the earth. It was Jesus who left his father's side in heaven, who came to earth in order to take those of us who were formerly trapped again in the poverty of sin and death, and by his redeeming love and sacrifice, he has made us royalty, princes in all the earth. He has made us kings and priests who will rule with him forever. This is the legacy of the king. Every one of us, I mean, you're at the grocery store you're going in and like half the magazines beside you have something to do with the royal family where people love royalty we're we're captivated with the idea of royalty well i see more royalty in this room than i've ever seen on some picture of a palace why because we have been united to christ made a part of the family of god this is the legacy of the king the royal priesthood but notice next i think the second part of this legacy is this king's name above every name. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. I'm just going to read now Philippians chapter 2, through six, verses 6 through 11. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That is, not that he couldn't grasp it mentally. mentally. He's Jesus. Jesus did not regard his equality with God as something to be grasped onto and held onto for his own benefit only. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Do you hear? The most handsome of the sons of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, that's rough. It is the very faithfulness and righteousness of Jesus manifested in his obedience to the Father that does not get him a Learjet, that does not get him two mansions. It is not the prosperity gospel. It is the gospel that obedience to the Father may cost you your life. But God, but God is of such a nature that if it does, you can take this to the bank. He is going to bring about an infinite, infinite amount of glory through that hardship. This is the gospel. Notice what happens. He dies on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, taken, of course, from the Old Testament, Yahweh, then translated in the New Testament, Lord. But this is the name bestowed on Jesus. He is found in appearance as a man, and yet he is the Lord of heaven and earth. The legacy of the king is in us, his royal priesthood. And the legacy in the, of the king is in that name which is above every name which the Father gave him all to the glory of the Father. And so, friends, if we've seen this king today, let me ask you this. You find yourself here today longing to be loved? 
Maybe you've been hurt by somebody you've loved. Maybe you just have a desire to be swept out of the mundane of this world. The hamster wheel, it may feel like, that we sometimes get caught up in the temporal, the harsh, the painful, whatever it is. Is that where you find yourself today? I would simply encourage you to do this. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Make him the singular pursuit of your life. Marvel at him who is at all one and the same time your brethren, your king, your God, and the lover of your soul. The one who in his grandeur, splendor, and majesty is calling you to his side to rule and to reign with him in righteousness, love, and justice. Fix your eyes on who has, him who has sanctified you, as Sybil read, who has cleansed you by washing with the water of his word and who will one day present you to himself spotless. Fix your eyes upon him who has loved you with an unbreakable love and who is even now as we speak in this very moment preparing a place for you so that where he is you will be also friends fix your eyes upon Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith let's pray father in heaven lord we thank you for this text, and we thank you for the, the picture of Christ that we've seen here. And God, my simple prayer is that you would help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. That we would look to him, God, who first looked to us. Lord, who, who, who said there on, on the brink of heaven's precipice, and sacrifice and offering, you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. And who knowing full well what would happen to that body if he would take it upon himself, willingly came in love that he might redeem a bride for himself. That we might be called to life from his side, from the blood and the water which has flowed. The forgiveness of our sins and the purification, Lord, of our nature. And so God, we pray, help us to fix our eyes on Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.